God sent his only son that we might live in and through him. But whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did, passing from death to life as we love one another, not being led astray, but remaining in his light where there is no darkness at all. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So let us love one another without fear, for perfect love drives out fear. And if we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. Believe in the name of his son and love one another. Dear children, let us not only love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Well, I hope that you're glad that you're here today. It's already been incredible to be able to worship Jesus as well as to celebrate with those who are being baptized. Glad that you're here. Uh, glad that you uh, remembered to, to spring forward on your clocks. And uh, for those of you online that are just waking up, maybe like, oh, I forgot. It's good to have you with us. Those of you in uh, Mount Vernon at our Skagit campus in Belize and on community sites. And from wherever you're coming from, so glad that you're with us. Before I get into uh, today's sermon, I want to just uh, spend a few minutes um, and just say thank you on a couple of things and, and some information as well. One is that I want to thank you uh, not only for carving out uh, uh, some time this weekend to be here together with us and online to celebrate and to worship and to look into God's word, but I also want to recognize that it was two years ago this weekend that everything kind of shut down. It was two years ago when we uh, were, had the uh, you know, shelter in place and couldn't drive and all that stuff. And over the last two years, uh, we as a church have had to make some decisions regarding mandates and recommendations and requirements and decisions that were not always easy to make and decisions that not everybody agreed with and decisions that some of you, quite frankly, didn't like and decisions that caused some people to leave Cornwall Church as their home church, which if they're connected with another church, I'm great with that because they're still part of the kingdom of God. But it's been difficult. Uh, as leaders, it's been difficult. Uh, I know for you it's been difficult. But here we are two years later, and I just want to say thank you for those of you who endured that, those of you who rolled with the punches, those of you who recognized that some of the decisions that we made, while you may not like them, really were not of eternal consequence and could handle it with, you know, and not that others couldn't, but sorry, that was the wrong word, that you hung with us. I just want to say thank you for, for your continued support. I'm so grateful for our tech team that allowed us to do things online and the incredible um, opportunity to connect with people all over. And I just want to say for some of you who are become very comfortable watching online, we're grateful to be able to, to have this uh, opportunity for you. For some of you who are local, who at this point are really um, very comfortable being in crowds and in, in public places, we would love to have you back in the building uh, to celebrate and join with us. For some of you, you're not ready for that yet, and we understand. For some of you, you're not able, and we get that, so we want to continue. But I just want to say thank you as a church. It's been an incredibly difficult two years, but God is still at work, isn't he? I mean, we saw that again. So want to say thanks. Another thing I want to thank you for is that many of you have been praying. Uh, there was a team, uh, some you know, a week ago, uh, I brought a team back from a two-week trip to Israel and Egypt, and some of you were praying for our trip, and we really appreciate that. There was a, a, an aspect to this trip that I'd never had before in any of my trips to Israel, um, and it was that everyone on the team had to be tested four times on three different continents for COVID. I have never been more thankful for such a negative team. Uh, 
And in uh, Everybody in all four tests on all three continents came back negative, and that was not a problem. So it was great to be in Israel again. For those of you who've been before, Sam sends his greetings. For those of you who were with us a couple years ago, Max sends his greetings from Egypt as well. Uh, a tremendous, tremendous trip. Um, when we were in Egypt, we finished off our trip in Egypt. The last day we were there, I got up early that morning, and I went for a run. And we were in Cairo, and so while things looked obviously different, the River Nile, I was running along the Nile River, and it just struck me. It's like surreal. I'm doing my morning run along the same river that Moses floated in a little basket in. Now, it wasn't probably right there, but it was the same river. I'm doing my morning run along the same river that that the plague, it was turned to blood, it was red, it was, it was, it was putrid, it wasn't drinkable. That, that was that miracle of Exodus. It was right here, this river. I'm running along the Nile River. And then it struck me. In, in recovery circles, there's a phrase. Denial is not just a river in Egypt. And this is the seamless transition and segue into my next point. Because I want to tell you about something that I'm in absolute, utter denial about. And I'm okay with that for the next six weeks. To understand the denial that I'm living in right now, I need to back up about 25 years. Late 90s, we're over on Meridian, the church is growing, uh, people are coming out, God's doing, I don't have a clue, none of us have a clue what we're doing, but God's doing some incredible things. Our pastoral staff is this ragtag group of mutts. I mean, we're all either former youth pastors or former hippies, that's it. And in, uh, in this summer, there was a gentleman from our, our community that I was aware of, he and his wife visited our church, and it was so great to see them, to you know, kind of see what is this freak show we've heard about. What's interesting is they came back and they brought their children and then they started attending our church, which was odd because they were normal. They had jobs. They were educated. They were all these things that we weren't. They owned a home, you know, and, and they were a part of this church. As our church kept growing, our staff needed to increase. And, and uh, I think it was Bill Wirtz said, hey, what if we ask this man to come and be a part of our pastoral team? And it was a long shot because he was so overeducated for what, I mean, he was beyond the qualifications. But we thought, why not? So we threw out the idea of, hey, you know, would you ever consider coming and being on our staff? The man that I speak of is a man named Randy Prees. Most of you know, Pastor Randy, yeah. And he and his wife, Pam, and at that time, Ann and Ben, their kids uh, were a part of our church. And Randy came on our staff 25 years ago, quarter of a century ago. And he's been such a vital part of not only of our staff, but our church and the ministry and our outreach and our DNA, all of that. And it's been unbelievable. Here's the part that I'm in denial. Randy does not want to use the word retirement. He, does, he, he forbids me to use the word retirement. So I'm not going to use the word retirement. <laughs> Randy is not retiring because God has incredible things in store for him in the next season of life. But Randy is uh, choosing to step away from full-time vocational uh, pastoral ministry here at Cornwall Church. And so May 1st will be his last day on our staff uh, here at Cornwall Church. And, um, and he has got incredible things ahead of him. God has a, a, a whole array of unfettered ministry opportunities and Medicare waiting for him. <laughs> and so his impact, as you well know, his impact is truly immeasurable in our church over this last quarter of a century. 
I mean, for some of you, he's, he's counseled you. For some of you, he did his, your pre-marriage counseling. He may have done your wedding. He may have dedicated your children. He may have baptized you. He may have led a small group that you were in. He may have taught a class that you went to. He may have done a funeral for someone in your home. He may have helped you work through. I mean, it's amazing. So in the next six weeks, between now and May 1st, if you want to write him or he and Pam a letter or a card, we're going to be collecting those, compiling those, and giving those to them on their last weekend here. So there's three ways you can do that, actually. One is that you can just bring it here on the weekend and drop it off at the information center, or you can mail it to the church. The address is there. Or during the week, you can just drop by and, and just leave it here. But we want to gather those together and, uh, and thank them. And I know that their impact has, has made a big uh, impression on your lives as well. For me personally, Randy, I mean, I don't, I hardly know what it's like to be a senior pastor without Randy. I mean, the vast majority, 25 years of being a senior pastor, he's been a part of our staff. He's been my pastor at times. He's shepherded me. He's been my counselor at times, though we've tried to keep things uh, healthy there, but he's counseled me through some things. He's been a mentor. He's shaped my thinking and my heart and, and motives. I mean, he's, he's helped me in all these things. He's been a partner and a colleague here on our pastoral team. He's my brother and he's my friend. So, because I can't bear the thought of life without Randy at Cornwall, I'm just going to live in blissful denial for the next six weeks, and then on May 1st, I'll be looking for a new counselor to help me through at that point, the reality that I face. But Randy, we love you. We're so grateful for you. Pray for he and Pam as they go into this next phase of life as God leads them. And I just want to say, Randy, if you move to, to, to Colorado to be the personal chaplain for Russell Wilson, I'll never talk to you again. So, anyway, <laughs> let's go on. And it's easy for me to go on because I live in denial. Uh, we're in this series, Go and Love and Be a Light, and we've been looking at the book of 1 John, not the Gospel of John. This book is way in the back of the, of the New Testament. It's written by John, John who was the apostle of Christ, the apostle, the disciple that Jesus loved. John was the brother of James, James and John. He was the son of Zebedee, also known as the son of thunder. That was a nickname that Jesus gave him. And he was also a pastor. He was a pastor of the church and churches around Ephesus. Churches that, that Paul had started. He had gone to be the pastor there. And now late in life, he writes them this, this document. It's not so much a letter. It's more like a sermon, we've said. It's more like a sermon. And there's some correction in this sermon. Not correcting their behavioral issues like Paul would write to the church in Corinth. That was a different story. The correction that he's addressing is corrections of some false teachers that have made their way into the church. Pastor Kip talked about that, I think, three weeks ago. He's making some corrections of some faulty thinking that they've been um, drawn into, some doctrine that's off, and he needs to correct this because it's affecting their connection not only with God, but with each other. And so he writes them this sermon. And today we're going to be looking in 1 John chapter 3. This will be our third week in chapter 3. If you want to get your Bible, your tablet, your devices open there, uh, we'll be looking at specifically at three verses today. As you're turning there, let me just tell you, as a pastor, sometimes people will come to me with concerns or questions that they're having in their own spiritual journey, their own faith journey. Sometimes it's questions and uncertainty. Sometimes it's doubt. And while there's those that at times doubt, you know, things about, was, you know, is the Bible true and does God really exist and did Jesus really come back from the dead and was Jonah really in a fish and did Noah really build a boat and all those things. Sometimes the questions and uncertainty and doubts are not about the scripture and not about God or his work at all. Sometimes the question and uncertainty and the doubt is about themselves. 
as they think about their lives, as they think about the end of their life, they begin to question, they begin to ask, they begin to wonder, have I done enough? Will I be good enough? Will God actually let me in? And sometimes it's not just wondering. Sometimes it's fear and worry. I'm worried that when I get there, I, he won't let me in, that I haven't done enough. And they don't state it this way, but this is their thinking. Someday when my days here on this earth are done, I will go and stand before the Lord and he'll look at me and he'll look at my life and he'll say, why don't you step back three steps in the to elevator and push the button. We have some nice parting gifts for you on your way out. Now they don't state it that way. I just make fun of them that way. Not you, of course. But here's my question, because some of you sitting here today or watching today, you deal with those questions and those doubts and those uncertainties even today. And some of you have, if you don't deal with them today, have. Let me just ask you this, no matter where you are, here or in Mount Vernon or Belize or online, if you have ever questioned, will I really make it in? If you've ever had some uncertainty, if you've ever had doubt, either now or sometime in the past, ever before, go ahead and raise your hand. Just let's be honest because my hand's up too. All right, m most of you, very confident young men there. Okay, the rest, most of us, most of us have had this. And it's not new, we're not the first, we're not the only ones. In fact, this is one of the things that John addresses, I'm gonna jump ahead, we are gonna be in chapter three, but jump ahead to, to chapter five, when he says, that, writes this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you can have assurance, so that you can have confidence, so you don't have to wonder, so that you don't have to doubt, so that you don't have to sing those lines from that great philosopher Whitney Houston, how will I know if he really loves me? I say a prayer with, a prayer with every heartbeat. John says, I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt. There's a phrase that he uses over and over again, six times, four times in chapter three. This is how we know. And it's a direct response to some of their questions, their uncertainties, their doubts, the false teaching. He says, you can know, and this is how you can know. And today, I want us to look at that. I mentioned we were in Egypt uh, a week ago. And um, while we were in Egypt, Egypt is amazing. We often think Israel Bible, but you think about all the people from the Bible who went to Egypt. Abraham was in Egypt. Obviously, uh, Moses was in Egypt, and Aaron, the children uh, Joseph and Jacob and all his sons were in Egypt. Uh, Elijah went to Egypt. Jeremiah went to Egypt. Some of the people at the time of the exile went to Egypt. Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus went to Egypt. A lot of people went to Egypt and the Bible. So it's biblical sites. But it's also extremely, extremely historical. Obviously, you know, the Sphinx and the pyramids and all that. So we, we were seeing biblical sites as well as historical sites there in Egypt. And uh, our last day, we went to the Egyptian National Museum. It's one of three major museums in Cairo. And it's, it's amazing. I mean, you could spend hours and hours, and there's so much history. And, and I mean, parts of the, the treasures of King Tut are in there. So I mean, be able to see that again. And you know that, that famous golden hood of King Tut that, that I mean, it's, it's like what he's known. And so we're looking at, and I just can't help but sing that Steve Martin song when I'm in there. You know, <laughs> when I die, don't think I'm a nut. Don't want no fancy funeral, just one like old King Tut, King Tut. You know, so I'm in there singing uh, Steve Martin songs. But it wasn't just a King Tut exhibit. There was another exhibit of this husband and wife, Yuya and Tuya. I know, I thought the same thing. Yuya and Tuya, the husband and wife. They weren't, he was not a pharaoh, but he was a prominent leader. And what's amazing is Yuya and Tuya, um, they discovered their tomb. They were alive around 1390 BC. You know, when we have museums in the United States, if something's two or 300 years old, we think it's old. 
in Egypt, it has to be two or 3,000 years old for it to be old. So they're around, and they were around like during Moses' time. And when they found their, discovered their tomb, one of the things is they found these mummies, and they're on display. I know it's a little bit morbid looking at these corpses from, you know, 3,500 years ago, but, but here's, here's Yuya and his wife, Tuya, and it, it's, it's amazing. I was just like, wow. And these jars where they put their vital organs and such. Anyway, I'm going to get off the... So we're looking at this, and when they found their tomb, they also found in a jar this long papyrus, longest continuous papyrus that they've ever discovered. It's 65 feet long, and it's the Book of the Dead. And as they unrolled it, here it is, you know, this, this document. It's displayed there on the wall behind glass, this, this document that's like 3,500 years old, the Book of the Dead. And in chapter 125, there's a scene called the final judgment. And Max, our guide, was explaining what the hieroglyphics say and explaining how the final judgment takes place. Here's a picture of, of this, this final judgment. And the way it operates is this, that the deceased person stands before a panel. You see the 14 people seated up on the top. Stands before a panel, and they have to deny six questions. There's a few more, but six main questions. The questions are this. Did you ever spoil the Nile? Which, if they were asking me, I'd have to say, define spoil. Because I guarantee you, if I ever swam in it, anyway. Did you ever spoil the Nile? Did you ever lie? Did you ever steal? Did you ever hurt anybody? Did you ever violate the sacredness of the dead? And did you ever sell wheat at an obscene price? And they have to say no. They have to have a denial to all of these. And then this panel, kind of this jury, these 14 people, will decide, are they telling the truth or not? And in the picture, seven of them kind of hold up the, the Egyptian uh, sign of life saying, yes, we agree. And seven of them do not. So you have seven and seven. Now, here's the deal. This is a hung jury, but they don't go to mistrial, and they don't have a vice president to be the deciding vote like our Senate does. So it goes to the second scene. We go down below, and you see this picture. And this is what happens in the second scene. They can't decide, should he go into the afterlife or not? So there's a scale there. And the scale has two things. On one side is the heart of the deceased person, and on the other side is a feather. And the scale is there. If the heart, the man has been lying, he's got evil deeds. If it's heavy, heavier than a feather, then the heart is eaten by the devourer and his soul is cast into the outer darkness. However, if he's good, if he's telling the truth, if his heart is as light as a feather or lighter, then he's ushered into the afterlife. Fascinating Egyptian thoughts. And as I was hearing this, as Max was explaining all this, you take away the panel, you take away this, the heart and stuff. But I thought, that's really salvation by works. And the vast majority of people, even in the church, while they may say the right words, have a mentality of salvation by works. That's where the uncertainty comes from. That's where the, the, the doubts come from. That, that's where the unknowing comes from because there's this, I've got to know, are, are my deeds good enough? Have I done enough good deeds? Have I done enough, you know, been sorry enough for my bad deeds and all this? And how will the scales tip at the very end? And if that's your mentality, someday there will be this scale up there, you will spend the rest of your life working extremely hard, completely gripped with this unknowing, maybe a fear, doubt of what will it really be like? Will I actually get into heaven? And that is exactly what we're going to look at today in these three verses. Because John says, I want to take all doubt away. 
I want to take your uncertainty away. I want to take your questioning away. I want you to know this then is how we know. So I want to read through all three verses, and then I want us to walk through them. John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, you know, beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. I hope and I pray that in the next few minutes as we go through this, that your uncertainty and your doubts can forever be put aside by standing on the authority of God's word. Verse 19, he says this. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Well, now that sounds wonderful. Being at rest in his presence, I'm there in his presence, and it's peaceful, and it's restful, and it's wonderful. Yeah, that's how things started. But that whole idea, if you've read scripture, that idea of being at rest in his presence, that went away in the garden. It started that way. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. They had a great fellowship. It was wonderful at rest. Then there was sin, and sin brought fear. They began to hide. Suddenly, they're not at rest in his presence. And every single time, one of the messengers of the Lord shows up to someone, they aren't saying, oh, I'm at rest. They're like, fear not, fear not. Settle down, settle down, we're okay. I mean, think about Moses. Think about the people in the wilderness, in the presence of God. Did their hearts find rest in the presence of God? God says, no, no, I'm coming down on Mount Horeb. I'm coming down on Mount Sinai. And no one is to come on the mountain. No one is to touch the mountain. And there's thunder and there's clouds and there's smoke and there's fire and there's lightning and there's rumbling and trembling. And Moses alone goes up on the mountain. Everyone else is scared to death. There's no rest in his presence. And after Moses comes down, he's like neon boy. He's like, what happened to him? And from there on out in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting in the presence of God, no one could waltz in there. If you went in there in an unworthy manner, your life was over. It was not a place of peace and rest. Only the high priest could go in there. You know, Aaron and Moses could go in and meet with God, but no one else. How about Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 6. You know, on the year, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And all these angelic beings were around the throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And does he say, and my heart was at peace. He says, I cried out, woe is me. I'm ruined. Literal translation. I am disintegrating. I am coming undone. I am unraveling here in the presence because I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst people who are unclean. There's no rest in the presence of God. When Peter sees Jesus as who he truly is, he falls face first into a boat filled with fish and he says, away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. No rest in the presence. And the disciples are on a boat, and there's a storm, and they're scared to death. And then Jesus says, quiet. They were scared of the storm. Suddenly it says, they're terrified in the presence of Jesus. Who is this that even the wind, the waves, the storms obey him? Setting our hearts at rest in the presence? In the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, Puritan preacher, is famous for his sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. You know, some of you were raised in that kind of understanding. There's this fear, not a 
respect fear, a scared fear, a terror, a trauma that you live with in the presence of God. And yet John says that we live and set our hearts at rest in his presence. See, somehow we need a confidence in God, not a dread of God. There needs to be some confidence in God. And we may get to this in two weeks. In First John chapter 4, he writes, perfect love drives out all fear because fear has to do with punishment, to which many of us say, exactly the point. I know. That's why there's this fear. I'm afraid of the punishment. I'm afraid of what God could do. I'm afraid of all, that, that. That's why I am so afraid. And how is it that we can have this confidence? Back to verse 20, he says, this then is um, how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. See, that's the problem. Our hearts condemn us. We know. We know our hearts. We know our lives. We know our motives. I mean, probably if you said, um, hey, you know that scale, my heart, the feather, keep your scale, keep your feather. I already know I'm gonna sink the thing. We know. We know the things we've done. We know our past. Our hearts remind us all the time. Yeah, think about that spring break. Yeah, yeah, think about that girl's trip to Vegas. Yeah, think about that business trip. Yeah, think about that guy's night out. Yeah, 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 you remember all that? Yeah, yeah, think about late at night when no one else was around and you were on your computer. Yeah, think about those things. We know what we've done. We know what we thought. We know our attitudes. We know our motives. We know the, the lust and the pride and the greed and the prejudice and the hatred and the judgment, all the things that we are. We know the dark recesses of our soul. We know that. And our hearts condemn us. Maybe you can identify with David when he writes in Psalm 51, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I've been a sinful, sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I know my life and my heart condemns me. Some of you will remember, some of you will not, uh, remember Macbeth. It was a work by Shakespeare that you were supposed to read. And you did the Cliff's Notes. A little side note. After last night's service, I met with Pastor Brian to talk to the online uh, group. And he said, okay, Bob, did you read Macbeth? Brian's looking for a new job today. <laughs> so, Macbeth. In the story that none of us read, but we read the Cliff's Notes. In Macbeth, Lady Macbeth encourages her husband to kill King Duncan. Some of you actually will remember this because you read it. She encourages him to kill King Duncan. And then she's racked with this guilt and she's terrorized by it. So much so that there's a scene where she's doing this sleepwalking because she's so, so taken by all of the, her guilt and what she's done. And she's spending 15 minutes trying to wash her hands. And she says, will these clean hands ever be clean? Her heart condemns her. If some of you are familiar with the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, Sarah Winchester, years ago, inherited millions of dollars 
But the millions of dollars came from the Winchester revival that had taken away thousands and thousands of lives. And she was so racked by the blood money that she was receiving and the guilt behind it that she begins to build just nonstop this, this dwelling for the souls of all of these people who've died. She, she's just racked with this guilt and her heart condemns. Now chances are that we don't sleepwalk and wash our hands for 15 minutes or build these mysterious mansions but our hearts condemn us and they remind us and they convince us that who we are is our worst mistakes, our worst failures. And then they begin to whisper to us. See, in Psalm 38 verse 4, Psalmist writes this, my guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. So our heart whispers to us all the things we've done. And then we kind of slip into this imposter syndrome. We have to kind of pretend. We have to hide things. We have to act as if. And our heart just whispers, you really think you're a Christian after you did that? You really think God could love you when you do that over and over again? Do you know how many times you told God you would never do it again and you did? And you think he hears your prayers? You think he would ever answer your prayers? No. Why do you think that he would ever love you? And you know what? God could never use you. Even if he wanted to, he couldn't because of your past. You're too bad. You've messed up too. You've done too much. And heaven, you really think he's going to let you in heaven? You've disappointed God. You're disgusting to God. That's what our heart whispers to us. Our hearts condemn us. Now, here's the truth about our hearts. Jeremiah points this out in Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Usually we use that in a different context, but maybe it'd be good to remember, when our hearts condemn us, our hearts are telling a lie. And maybe what we need to do is talk back to our heart when our heart condemns us. You want to be spiritually mature and talk to your heart and say, heart I hear what you're saying, but I'm rubber and you're glue and it bounces off me and sticks on you. Take that. I know you are, but what am I? Or, better yet, some of you are taking notes like, really? Is that what I should say? <laughs> better yet, go to God's word. What we're going to see, what John says here, is so unbelievably powerful now, I don't normally tee this up, but when I read this next phrase, if I don't hear at least a little bit of amen or praise the Lord or yes or clapping or something, I'm going to worry. Just telling you that. Okay. So he says this. We set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. We've already talked about that. Here's this phrase. Here's how we can do this. Here's why we can set our hearts at rest. Look at this. For God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than our hearts. Our hearts condemn us, but God is greater. And yes, if God is not in the equation, then your heart is absolutely right. You don't stand a chance. But God is in the equation, and you do stand a chance because Jesus is not only your advocate, he's also your atoning sacrifice, and it's what he's done, not what you've done. And so it's not about your good deeds on a scale. God is greater than our hearts. And the greatness of God, and Isaiah is talking about how great God is in Isaiah 40. He, he just says, hey, 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 lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. 
like literally, like look, who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power, none of them are missing. 15 chapters later, we come back to this up in the sky, the cosmos, the magnitude of the universe, how high the heavens are. And God says, my thoughts are not like your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than our thoughts. God is greater than our ways. And not only is God greater, but he has a greater heart. It's a greater heart. The heart of God for us. In the midst of our failures, in the midst of our sin, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Someone sent me a book, um, and it was, uh, very often if someone sends me a book, it'll say who it's from or a note or something. This one came without, I don't know, whoever sent it, thank you. It's a book by uh, Dane Ortland. It's called um, Gentle and Lowly. And the whole book, I've just gotten into it a little bit, but the whole book is about the heart of Christ. And in this, he, he talks about the only time Jesus ever pulls the veil back on the inner core of his heart is found in Matthew chapter 11, where he says in that passage, oh, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, all that. And he says, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. That's a greater heart than we have. And Ortland goes on to explain how the heart of Christ is one of the most approachable, accessible, understanding, kind, forgiving hearts that there ever was. It's a greater heart, and God is greater than our hearts. In Micah chapter 7, it says this, Who is God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. It's not this, oh, I have to forgive. Delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us, You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. God is greater. Yes, our hearts condemn us. Yes, they whisper all these things. Yes, they remind us of all this stuff. But God says, I'm greater than that. You remember the second week of this series, Pastor Kip preached out of 1 John chapter 1, that verse in in, uh, 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yep, we know. Our hearts remind us, but God is greater. Let's go on. Verse 20, whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, then he says, and, and, because that would be good enough right there. Well, we could stop right there, but he says, wait, 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 and, and what he's getting ready to tell us While the other phrase was like so amazing, you know, for God is greater than our hearts, what he's getting ready to say, these next three words, could either bring about complete, absolute terror or unbelievable comfort, depending on how you understand it. It can cause you to say, oh, no, or thank goodness. For God is greater than our hearts, and three words, he knows everything. Oh, no. Or, thank goodness. He knows everything. He knows everything you've done. He knows everything you've said. He knows everything you're planning to do. 
He knows everything you will say. He knows your attitudes. He knows your passions. He knows your motives. He knows all that. He knows everything. Again, years ago, three, four years ago, we studied Psalm 139, that picture of how God knows everything. The psalmist writes, oh, Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. Listen, when God searches, I mean, he leaves no stone unturned. You have searched me, and you know me. Little details, like when I sit down and when I rise up, stuff that no one else knows. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. You hem me in behind and before you've laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, is too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I'm going to become a dead, Beth, in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, settle on the far side. Even there, he knows everything. Everything about every one of us. We would say, oh, no. And God would say, even though, even so, I love you. When we begin to understand, that should bring incredible comfort to us. That it's not like there's going to be some surprise that all of a sudden God's going to discover something and say, oh, by the way, yesterday I found your yearbook and I was reading some of the things that people wrote and I didn't know that about you. <laughs> Changes everything in this salvation. No. He knows. Tim Keller said this. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. If someone says, oh, I love you, but they don't really know you, you're always going to be worried that they're going to find out who you really are, what you've really done, how you really, you know, operate. And it's comforting, but it's superficial. If someone knows you really, really well and they say, yeah, I don't want to have anything to do with you, that's kind of our biggest fear. But when someone knows everything about you and loves you more than anyone ever has, well, that's a lot like being loved by God. About four years ago, Torrin Wells uh, wrote a song. It's on the radio, on uh, Christian radio. Fully known and loved by him. First Corinthians, uh, Paul says, you know, I, I see in a glass dimly, but someday I'll see clearly. He says, someday I will know fully, even as I am fully known. All right, let's wrap this up. Verse 21, he says this. Dear friends, now, I won't spend a lot of time on this. Five weeks ago, I think, I talked about the, the dear friends. A better translation of that is the word beloved, though we don't use that a whole lot. Uh, two weeks ago, Pastor Brian hit chapter 3, verse 1. How great the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that's what we are. This idea, he says, beloved, yes, I love you. I'm your former, former pastor, he writes to them. But more than that, you are loved by the one who knows everything. Beloved, he says, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And this isn't a, a conditional if then. This is more of an assumed since therefore. Yeah, our hearts say what they want to say, but God is greater than that. So we know that our hearts can't condemn us because God hasn't. And since our hearts don't condemn us, then we have confidence. We have confidence before God. 
Trust God more than you trust your heart. Trust God and what he says in his word more than you trust your heart and what it says. Put your confidence in God and what he has done more than in you and what you have done. Because God is greater than our hearts. It's not about a scale. When we understand that, when we grip that, then all that question, all that doubt, all that uncertainty, does God really love me? Can he really use me? Will he forgive me again? And will I ever make it into heaven? Is not about a scale and my heart and a feather or good deeds and bad deeds. It's about what Christ, my advocate, Christ, my atoning sacrifice has done for me. And because God is greater than my heart, I can rest assured. I can have confidence. Paul would write in Romans chapter eight, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 30 verses later, he said, what shall we say then in response to this? If, since, if God is for us, who can be against us? He, he who did not spare his only son, but gave him up freely for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And then he poses this question. And who can bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? Because it is God who justifies. God is greater than our hearts. We grew up in church singing blessed uncertainty, blessed doubts, blessed questions, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I'm an heir of salvation, purchased of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. The third verse, perfect submission, all is at rest. I in my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting Looking above, listen to this one. Filled with his goodness, lost in his love. Oh, this is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. See, what I long for every single one of us is when our hearts condemn us, when there's those doubts, when there's those uncertainties, we come back not in any kind of arrogant, presumptuous audacity, but on the authority of God's word. And the humility before Christ to say, this is my story. I never have to question again, does God love me? Am I forgiven? Do I have a place in eternity? Because God is greater than my heart. And we can rest assured. Amen.